So we are working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul was really the most important leader in the early church, uh, along with Peter, after um, Jesus died. And this is one of his earliest letters. So as I said last week, um, it's a really important letter. It's one of his earliest letters. It's also Paul's angriest letter. And I made the point that anger will always lead you to what is ultimate, whether it's your own anger or the anger of someone else, seeing their anger and why they're angry will always lead you to what's ultimately important to them. And so the good thing about having this early angry letter is we get to find out less than 20 or 30 years after the death of Jesus, what did the early church consider so important that it was worth getting angry about? That's what we have here, which I think is a pretty awesome opportunity. Because a lot of people will say, well, you know, different people believe this, believe that. Who can even really know? You can know what the early church thought was the most important. Because here you have one of the earliest letters within 20 or 30 years after the death of Jesus. And it's an angry letter that points you to what really mattered and what was ultimate to the early church. And it's about, it's about how you can be right with God. The creator who made heaven and earth and everything and everyone here made us for a purpose, a purpose that we've not lived up to, none of us. And so mankind has a serious problem. The letter of the Galatians speaks about God's solution to that problem and how we could not just be okay with him, but we could be in a relationship with him that would be described as being those he delights in. Not people that God just grudgingly puts up with, but people that God delights in. How can God delight in you tonight? That's what the letter to the Galatians is all about. Word that we use in kind of Christian circles sometimes, a word the Bible uses for this, is the word justification. It's a word we use too, right? How, you know, we try to justify ourselves or our actions or our decisions sometimes to people. When we talk about justification in a Christian sense, what we mean is how can we be beautiful in God's sight, particularly when we're not, and we know we're not, and yet God says we need to be. So how can that happen? Let's look at Paul's words here. Chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 6. I know I read a couple of these verses last week, but we are going to read them again. But before we do, I want to read you something a friend of mine wrote. Jason Harris, he actually pastors a church up in New York City now. Um, but before that, he did RUF at Northeastern up in Chicago. And I love this paragraph. You have to listen uh, carefully because I didn't write this out for you. But he says this, George Bernard Shaw described life in startling terms when he wrote in one of his plays, the lives which have no use, no meaning, no purpose, will fade out. You will have to justify your existence or perish. And Jason goes on and says, in our global information age of limitless possibilities, the freedom to be anything has turned into the expectation to be everything. 
As a result, many of us feel relentless pressure to justify our existence or perish. So we try to establish our value by making good grades, achieving our goals, enhancing our sex appeal, being authentic, serving others, or perhaps simply improving our Facebook profile. But despite our attempts to prove our worth, we never seem to measure up. Christianity acknowledges our predicament and challenges us to see that the justification we crave cannot be achieved by ourselves through our own efforts, but can only be received from God as a gift. And I'll add, it's a gift that even people who have received it often don't value and often lose sight of. And that brings us to Paul's words in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes to people he dearly loves and he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That word gospel literally means good news. Not that there is another one, another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel, the good news of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, he means previously, let him be accursed. Damned to hell is what it means. As we said before, so now I say again, in case you missed it, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema, cursed, damned to hell. I told you this was an angry letter. For now, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into these important words. Lord, we thank you that you tell us what makes you angry so that we could pay attention. We pray that you'd send your spirit to wake us up so that we could pay attention tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, David Brooks, columnist for the New York Times, who I really appreciate, wrote a book a few years ago called Bobos in Paradise. I guess it's actually been about 10 years ago now. Love this book, Bobos in Paradise. It's a very perceptive book about the way our society has changed. Um, in particular, the way things have changed since institutions of higher learning, particularly the elite universities like Harvard and Yale, changed after World War II the way they accepted students. Earlier in this century, and even before, the way you got into an elite university was to have a father or a grandfather who had been at that university. You got in through your family connections. But in the last 50, 60 years, that's changed. Rather than getting in through family connections, you get into those kinds of schools based on your own merits based on what you can achieve through your ACTs, through your GPA, and through your extracurricular activities and your essay. But it's all about what you can do. 
And it's actually kind of a mysterious process, right? Some of y'all have been through that process, right? Only recently getting into Belmont. And, you know, the anxiety of trying to figure out what is it that they're looking for. You don't actually know always. But nonetheless, Brooks says that that fundamental shift has really ushered in a profound shift in our culture to where we live now, not in an aristocracy, but in what he calls a meritocracy. In other words, he says, life is a continual aptitude test. Everything you do is measured and matters for what you might want to do next. And we feel this. Wendy and I, we have kids. Our oldest just got into a really good high school through the lottery. And yet, even as we began to look on the internet and see, is could this really be true? Um, we began to notice, well, he has to have a certain grade point average, and he has to have a certain uh, test score on his TCAP tests. And we began to be afraid. Does he have it? Will he keep it? Right? You know this. This is the world you live in. You're only as good as what you are able to produce for somebody, and you never can rest. This is the meritocracy. But this letter of Galatians is good news for people who live in the midst of a meritocracy. Because when you come to Christianity, you come to a very different way of life. But it's hard to get used to. So much of the world we live in and so much of our hearts as well. It's not just, we're not just victims of the world we live in. It's also our hearts. Tell us that we need to prove why we matter to other people. Don Miller in his book, um, his second book, not Blue Light Jazz, but the, um, what is it? Um, Searching for God Knows What. Yeah, I really enjoy that book. He's got this great um, story in there where he talks about being in a class on values clarification. Maybe some of you had that, or maybe it was sort of a fad when he and I were younger. But he talks about being in this class and the question being raised that if you were in uh, a lifeboat with a lawyer and a mother and a teacher and a fireman, and one of the people had to get thrown overboard because the lifeboat was going to sink, how would you justify how would you justify why you should be in the lifeboat and he says basically whether you realize it or not all of us are continually trying to justify why we shouldn't be thrown out of the lifeboat we're doing it we're caught up in it all the time and paul is angry because people that should know better People that were delivered from that kind of slavery and bondage have turned back to it again. This good news that you could be set free from the bondage of having to impress God and everybody else, that bondage they were set free from. And that's why it says, I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you would turn back to that kind of slavery. Now, it's interesting, the word that he uses here, in verse 7, he says, there are some who trouble you, and it's true. There, Paul had preached the gospel to this group of people, and then he had left, and he had went elsewhere, and then he heard news that some other teachers had come in after him and taught 
things contrary to the gospel. But the word he uses here is interesting in verse 7. He says, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now the word translated distort there is a particular kind of distortion. It's not just you know, sort of like a big muff fuzz. It's a, it's a distortion. Some of you might get that, but some of you don't, right? All right, sorry, that was a little musician lingo there. No, the distortion here is not the distortion that we love in, the, in rock and roll. It's the distortion, a particular kind of distortion that means reversal. So what he literally is saying is here is that there are some who trouble you and want to reverse the gospel of Christ. And that actually helps us to begin to understand what has happened. This is one of those letters where until you get into chapter 2 and chapter 3, you're kind of trying to read between the lines to figure out what is he so mad about? And you have a clue here. There's some people who have come and have sought to distort the gospel, and the particular way that they've sought to distort it is to reverse it. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, you, if you look back at verse 6, you begin to get a clue of what it means. It says here, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him, that means God, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, a reversed gospel that is not even worthy of the word gospel because it's not good news at all. What is the reversal? It's basically this. Rather than beginning with the grace of Christ, this reverse gospel says that you begin with something that you need to do and then God gives you grace as his response. Now, honestly, that doesn't seem like that big a deal to a lot of us. I'm sure it doesn't. I mean, the false teachers, along with Paul, both agreed that God is gracious. And both of them agreed that you need God's grace to be in a relationship with him. But one reversed the gospel. Paul says, it begins with grace. God called you in the grace of Christ. Grace was how your relationship with God commenced. It's the beginning. But the reversal of that says that grace is God's response to either something you are or something you do. And honestly, there are a lot of people even a lot of Christians in our day and age who believe this reversed, distorted gospel. And yet it seems like a gracious gospel. Here, I'll give you an example. The story of the prodigal son, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. You know the story about the younger son who says to his dad, I want my inheritance. And he goes and it says that he squandered the money. Eventually he finds himself in a pig pen, which for a Jewish boy is a pretty big deal. You couldn't, you couldn't come up with a way of saying he's in just rotten, despicable shape. Bigger than that, to say that this kid is feeding pigs, and it says that he wanted to eat the food that he was feeding to the pigs. You know, Jews and Muslims aren't real big into pork, right? You understand this, right? That's a graphic image, right? And yet it says that what he did, it says that he came to his senses in the parable, and it says that he says, you know what? My father's servants have plenty of food. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. Make me like one of your working men. And so he gets up and he heads back to his father. And you remember the story? 
His father, seeing him from far off, hikes up his skirts, which no no self-respecting Middle Eastern patriarch would ever show his legs. But he hikes up his skirts and he runs to his son. And do you know what his son says to him? He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. But what he doesn't say is, make me like one of your working men. Now, what's going on in this parable? Well, here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing about this parable is he intends, he intends to earn his way back into his father's good graces. When he goes back, what he intends, the speech he plans, is to say, Father, I've sinned. Be gracious to me and give me a chance to make it better. Give me a chance to work off my debt. That's all I need. But when his father humiliates himself, he doesn't say what he planned to say. Now, here's what's interesting. There's a man... Um, there's a man who's done a lot of work on the parables and has taught in the Middle East his whole life. And he says what's interesting is most Christians think of God as one who receives us when we're repentant. That he's gracious towards us if we come to him. And he says what's interesting is that's the Islamic idea of God. Most Christians actually understand the prodigal son parable the way Islam understands God. Allah is gracious to those who come to him and throw themselves on his mercy. But the prodigal son is much more of a radical story than that. It's not a story about God being gracious to one who throws himself upon his mercy. It's a story about God coming and seeking the one who still doesn't understand grace because he's asking for a chance to work off his debt. But when he sees the father humiliating himself, taking all of the shame upon himself, because you got to understand in that culture, all of the community would have looked at that boy and hated him. You don't sell part of the inheritance. You don't tell your father, I wish you were dead. I've got uh, neighbors, my next door neighbors are, are Kurdish from Iraq. I can imagine one of those boys telling their father, I wish you were dead. Unheard of. That's what this boy does, and his father still loves him. That's the astonishing gospel. Not that God is gracious if you pick yourself up and you throw yourself on his mercy, but that God's grace comes first. The way Paul says it in another letter, in Romans 5.8, he says, while we were yet sinners... Actually, he starts this way. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you think the good news of the gospel is that if you decide to go to God and ask him to be gracious to you, then he will, believe me, that's not the gospel. That's actually the reversal of the gospel. The gospel is actually bigger than that. The gospel is while you were dead in your sins and trespasses, God who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ. You might recognize that. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verbatim. Grace is God making dead people alive. And if you reverse that, you've distorted the gospel, you've lost the gospel. That's what he says. That's what Paul's getting at here. That's what he's so 
upset about. And what it comes down to is basically this. Does God love us and accept us? And then we seek to live in a way that will please him? Or does he look for us to try our best? And then he meets us and covers us. If you believe that there's something you have to do to get God to accept you, then I'll tell you this. Trials, trials will always affect you in one of two ways. You know, hear what I'm saying. If you believe that it's up to you to get God on your side by something you do or something you don't do, or something you are, if you believe that, then when trials come, there really are only two things that can happen to you. You either will hate yourself because you'll feel like, I did everything I was supposed to. I wasn't as bad as her. Like, look at all the crap she does, and her life is blessed. So you'll hate yourself because you didn't do what you thought you should have done. If only I'd tried a little harder. Maybe I could have gotten what I wanted. Maybe God would have blessed me. You'll either hate yourself for not doing enough or you'll hate God because you'll say, how dare you not bless me after all I've done, after all I've sacrificed. Trials will always expose what is truly your functional gospel. And the only way to have joy in trials, I don't mean just to say trials don't matter. Trials are real. But if you don't understand the gospel, the way Paul's trying to help you understand it here, then trials will either make you hate yourself or hate God. Let's go on. That's the first thing, the distortion of the gospel that's a reversal of the gospel. The second is the distortion of the gospel troubles the church because this isn't just about you individually. What you believe about the gospel and whether it's reversed in your mind will affect you individually, but it also will affect your whole community. Now, there's other places in Galatians where this is going to come out again, so I won't say a lot about this right now. But Paul later says, what's happened to all your joy? And he says, now in this community, he says, you're biting and devouring one another. Your relationships with other people will always be connected to whether or not you feel like you need to justify yourself. Because there's only two ways to justify yourself, really. One is to lift yourself up. The other is to tear everybody else down so that you kind of come up. In communities where the gospel of free grace is not dominant and running through the community, will always be marked by biting and devouring, judging one another, looking down on one another, gossiping, boasting. So he says this here in verse 7. There are some who trouble you and want to reverse the gospel. The gospel being reversed will always trouble the church. Why? Because the church is built on the gospel. And I don't just mean like a church like the walls and the building. I mean the Christian community. Because God doesn't just call individuals to come to him. He wants to make a new humanity on earth to demonstrate to the watching world that there is another way to live. And what RUF is about is not just about you coming to understand the gospel, but about trying to make a gospel community that says, the good news of the gospel changes the way I love other people. 
I don't have to get their acceptance because I have the acceptance of God. And that gets us down to the third point. To distort the gospel is to desert the one who called you in grace. You see that? Now, why, this is in, it really important. In verse, in verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. To believe a distortion of the gospel is not just about theology. It's about relationship. Because Christianity is not just about making sure you know all the right answers. It's about being in relationship with the one who made you and loves you. And if you are believing a reversed, distorted gospel, it's tantamount to deserting the one who called you because you're turning away from him. You're turning away from him. And again, what happens is if you feel like it's up to you to get God to love you, you will look at your life and you will see all kinds of evidence either that he does or he doesn't. And if you think it's up to you to get him to love you, when you see evidence in your life that he's not loving you the way you think you should be loved, you'll blame yourself or you'll blame God. But one thing you won't have is an open, lovely relationship with the one who made you. And you know this. Have you ever been in a relationship with somebody who just nitpicks everything? If you think of God as one who's always watching you in a way that he's just looking to see if you're going to make the grade constantly, maybe you have parents like that. And it makes you totally self-conscious. See, Christianity, justification, being made beautiful in God's sight by his grace, is not to make you think less of yourself, but it is to make you think of yourself less. In other words, when you know that you are beautiful in God's sight because of what he did, when you really know that, it sets you free to not obsess over that all the time. So many people who grew up in church are obsessing over what does God think about me until they just can't take it anymore. And then they just sort of like, okay, forget it. I just can't do it. If you think that God is a cruel taskmaster, eventually you will wear out. You know, one of, my, one of my favorite songs is a song by Patty Griffin where she talks about this. And she talks actually in this, it's actually a song about masturbation. But I, I, I love this song because she starts talking in this song. It's called Wiggly Fingers. Do you all know this song? It's on her red record. It's kind of an old record, but it's a, it's a really profound exploration of this. I know nobody will look me in the face when I use that word, right? <laughs> And you're all wondering, you know, I love using that word when, my, when parents are here, you know, anyway. But we didn't get to do that tonight. Making them listen to the podcast. All right, here's the point. She starts out, basically, she grew, she grew up going to a religious school, right, is the picture of this song. And basically, she gets sent home, she says, with a note about my unspeakable behavior because I couldn't keep my little wiggly fingers to myself. And the chorus line comes in, who the hell's going to save you now? In other words, if you break the rules... If you break the rules, you get sent home. And who's going to save you if you can't keep the rules? And then she gets older, and then the wiggly fingers image turns around. And she talks about how rather than pursuing intimacy, she says, I'm just going to stay safe over here in the corner, keeping my little wiggly fingers to myself. And then the chorus line changes, and it says, who the hell says I need a savior anyhow? 
You know, there are two ways of fleeing Jesus and his grace. One is to try to keep the rules so that you don't need him. And the other is to say, you don't get to tell me how to live. But both of those are equal and opposite, but at the same time, the same ways of avoiding Jesus and avoiding his grace, either by trying to keep the rules or by saying, who the hell needs to make up rules? I make up my own rules. Two ways of avoiding Jesus, and that's what this letter is about. All right, we get down to this last thing. The distortion of the gospel makes us live for the approval of others. This is fascinating how he says here in verse 9 and 10. Let me read this again. He says, as we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And then Paul says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? In other words, is he taking this bold stance and this bold tone because he's trying to get their approval? He says, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, he says at the end of verse 10, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's pretty stark. And, here, and here's what he's saying is, you can't be living for the approval of people and be resting in the approval of God. To the degree that you're living for the approval of other people, to that degree you're not resting in the approval of God. But the true gospel sets you free to no longer need the approval of man. The gospel, in other words, gives us courage. There's confidence that comes from knowing that I don't need to, I don't need to do the right things for God to love me. Don't, don't you wrestle over whether or not you're doing the right things? I mean, gosh, you think about relationships in our day and age. You know, even when I was growing up, even when I was your age, there were, there, the, the rules were starting to change. You know, if you ask a girl out, do you pay for it? I don't know. It depends on if she's from the north or south. Maybe. But yet you're not really sure. Do you open the door for her? Well, depending on who she is, she may get really offended. Or if you don't, she may get really offended. Like, in so many areas in our lives, there are no rules. We don't know what to do. And at the same time, we're trying to get everybody to like us. Do you know what kind of bondage that is? Listen, to the degree that you're trying to control things that are uncontrollable, to that degree, your life will be filled with anxiety. And one thing I can tell you, in the last 10 years, anxiety disorders are just off the charts among college students. Why? Because we live in a world without many rules anymore, and nobody knows what to do at the same time that what you do matters more. And the only thing that's going to set you free from that catch-22 and that miserable circle is for God to set you free by saying, my grace my grace says that you're beautiful in my sight, not because you did anything right, but because I sent my son to live and die in your place. And when I look at you, I look at you clothed in his righteousness. That's the only thing that can set you free. And when that sets you free, it changes the way you go out into the world. You know why we sing all these old hymns? Not because you know them all. Uh, honestly, like some of them are, are hard to sing. I understand that. Some of them even have words that you're not even sure what they mean maybe. But we know, and I know, my own heart and I know your hearts, it's not enough just to hear the gospel. You need the gospel to take root in your heart 
At the core of your being, you need to know that you're beautiful in God's sight, not because of what you did. And if it's not because of something you did, then it's not something you can lose. And you need to have that so transform you that you can walk out of this room and you can go out into the world and say, I don't believe your lies anymore. I don't believe that I'm worth what I can produce. I don't believe that my value is based on how I do on a silly exam. Not that school doesn't matter, but it's not what makes you beautiful in God's sight. And you know what? Once you get free to understand that, you probably will do better. <laughs> because nothing will make you more self-conscious and, and, and not be able to do things very well as thinking that everything you do matters to the ultimate degree. But Jesus didn't come to put you into bondage. Jesus said in John chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And as we go through this study of Galatians, I pray that that will happen. I pray that will happen. Let's pray together.